The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. Many people who go to graduate school in science assume that they will be, you know, scientists. But jobs in academic science are becoming fewer and fewer. What does this mean for the culture and practice of science? And what should anyone do about it? This week on Science for the People, we're exploring the STEM pipeline and what happens when people drip out. We'll be speaking with Paula Stefan about practicing PhD contraception, with Gary McDowell about changing the STEM process from the inside, and with Melissa Vaught on going into science and getting out alive. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a science writer with Science News and Society for Science in the Public. And I am a drip, a drip out of the science pipeline. I majored in science in college, and after college, I got a PhD. Then I did a postdoctoral research position where I worked under another advisor for another three years. I even looked for a job on the tenure track job market setting out to be a professor. That career path from college to graduate school to postdoc to professor is one of the paths in the STEM pipeline, the path toward a career in science, technology, engineering, or math. But now I'm a writer and a podcaster. I do not have a career in science, though I do use my scientific training every day. I am far from the only scientist to drip out of the pipeline. More students are going into graduate school for STEM than ever before, but the number of jobs for professional scientists is not increasing at the same rate. With more and more people going in one end of the pipe and no increase in the width of the pipe at the other end, pressure is going to take over and spring a leak somewhere. This week, we're talking about the STEM pipeline, where the pressure is coming from, where STEM graduates are going, and what might need to change. I'm here with Paula Stefan, an economist at the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies at Georgia State University in Atlanta. She is the author of the 2012 book, How Economics Shapes Science, and was Science Career's 2012 Person of the Year. She has served on the National Academy of Sciences Committee on the Postdoctoral Experience Revisited and is serving on the Committee for the Next Generation of Researchers, among many, many other accomplishments. Paula, welcome. Thanks very much. I'm glad to be here. I'd like to start with just a few definitions for people who may hear a lot about science, but may not really know how the scientist sausage is made. What do people talk about when we talk about the STEM pipeline? What is the beginning and where are the ends? Well, first of all, um, from my perspective and people who study this, we're particularly focused on people who receive PhDs in science and engineering. Um, and I'll use the National Science Foundation definition of science and engineering. And many of the numbers that I'll cite um, are focused on the biomedical sciences, life sciences in general, the physical sciences, and engineering. Although some of the numbers that NSF gives us also include the social um, sciences, such as economics, and psychology. So to begin with, when we talk about the pipeline, um, most of the data that we look at looks at individuals who are getting PhD degrees in science and engineering, 
And um, we think about the number that are produced each year, which has been growing, as you said, over a number of years. Um, and we think about what happens to them after they've gotten their degree. And many of us who read about science or listen to science podcasts, as the case may be, keep getting told that there's a STEM shortage, that we need to get more people interested in science and pursuing careers in science. Do you agree that there is a STEM shortage? Well, I think that is very much in the eye of the beholder, okay? Um, but I would argue that we definitely do not have a shortage if we're looking at the demand for researchers compared to the supply of people who have been trained to do research. And in almost all fields right now, the demand for researchers is less than the supply of people who've been trained to do research. Now, in part of that reason right now is that as a result of the crisis, which really happened in 2008, but took a while to get out of, um, fields in science that are heavily employed in industry, the demand for those fields has been down. So that's both engineering and the physical sciences. But in other fields, such as the biomedical sciences, I think there's been a surplus of individuals for a considerable time, and it doesn't just relate to the crisis. I've argued elsewhere that I think that there are systemic problems in the biomedical workforce that have created a system in which um, there are what you might call positive feedbacks, and so we produce more, and if we produce more, there's a demand or more in a way, and it is a, um, it, it continues. Um, there, are, if, if you go back in the U.S., you'll find that there were reports as early as the mid-1970s that argued that we were producing too many biomedical scientists. I was on a committee that Shirley Tillman um, chaired in 1998 called Trends in the Early Careers of Life Scientists, we presented data there arguing that there was an oversupply relative to the demand for researchers. And the same argument can be made right now. Um, and the reason we're in that kind of situation, particularly in the biomedical sciences, and I'm not sure, Bethany, what, what field was your degree in? Uh, I was biomedical sciences. Not surprising, because it's the largest field and the field that's grown by um, the most. If you, if you look at the biomedical sciences, the incentives have really been there to grow the field. Because most, you know, you're, you've been trained as a researcher. You went through a PhD program and a postdoc program. And what we know is that most of the research that's going on at universities goes on in a principal investigator's lab. And a principal investigator um, in running a lab needs bright people to work in that lab and to help him or her with research. And that's become more and more important given the amount of time the principal investigator has to spend trying to raise money to run the lab. Um, some people estimate that a principal investigator today is spending something like 44% of their research time um, just trying to get funding and dealing with the administration of grants. So who are you going to get to work in your lab? Well, there are really three categories of people. One is graduate students, one is postdocs, and one is staff scientists. And if you run the numbers, and I've talked about this elsewhere, it turns out that in most situations, postdocs are just about the cheapest form of labor. I've estimated that they're about 15 to $16 an hour. Graduate students are the next cheapest, and people like staff scientists who are more permanent positions 
are considerably more expensive. So what this means is that in the U.S. and in Canada and in many places in Europe, there's been a strong demand from the research sector to provide funding in the form of research assistants and postdoc positions to young people to receive training. And if you're interested in science and you're a young person um, and somebody says, you know, come work for me, work with me, you'll have a stipend, your tuition will be covered and you can get a degree. If you're really interested in science and doing science is important to you, that's a strong incentive to enter the field. The problem is that that model just doesn't hold up if you keep doing it and doing it and training more and more people when the demand for university faculty has not been growing and when the government has really, um, in term, real terms, cut back or held constant the amount of funding that's going into research. And at the same time, there's strong evidence that in industry, industry is has really cut back on the amount of research it's doing. So um, the incentives are there in the biomedical scientists, sciences to train people, to have people to work in the lab, I would say. And in the physical sciences, the incentives have really been to have graduate students to help teach courses at the undergraduate level. That's the way courses in physics and in chemistry have historically been taught. So I'll stop there and we can continue. Well, well, you're talking about this, and this sounds like economics. It is. <laughs> and it's funny because that's not really the common perception. You know, a lot of people who go into science are kind of proud of saying they, they don't do it for the money. But there's major economics at play in how science functions. I was wondering if you could kind of take us through, you know, you mentioned that primary and principal investigators spend a lot of their time trying to get funding. How is a lab? paid for? Well, a lab, a, a, a scientist lab in, at, at least in the U.S., is um, primarily paid for off of grants, and these grants primarily come from the federal government. If you're in the physical sciences, they're very likely to come from the National Science Foundation or DOD or DOE, and if you're in the biomedical sciences, these grants are very, very likely to come from the National Institutes of Health. A new faculty member gets what we call a startup package, and a startup package is a package that helps them um, outfit their lab and staff their lab at the beginning. These startup packages can range anywhere from a half a million to several million dollars. And so that's startup money to really start your lab. But the startup money will only go so far. And when it runs out, if you want to continue doing research and you're a faculty member, and there's no way you're going to get tenure unless you continue doing research, you're going to have to bring in grants. And you're going to have to bring in grants to pay for your lab. So you mentioned that they get these startup packages, and these startup packages can be pretty large. I mean, a million dollars is is not, you know, chump change. That's pretty good. And I should argue that that's one reason that positions in academia are not growing in leaps and bounds, because it's reasonably expensive to hire, to have a new hire. Right. And then when people 
people apply for grants, how far does one grant generally go? I mean, where does the money go when people get a grant from, say, the National Institutes of Health? So, I mean, first of all, the money comes in, we could think of in two parts. One part goes to the scientist direct or goes to the scientist lab, and it will cover salaries, including part of the principal investigator's salary that's written off on the grant. And part of the funds will, will be to pay for postdocs and graduate students and other staff that might work in the lab. And part of it will clearly be for materials and supplies. And um, as, as in, in the book I wrote, I talk a lot about how expensive materials and supplies are. And in the biomedical sciences, as you probably know, even keeping mice is quite expensive. Now, you mentioned that because of the funding models and trying to produce science scientists have to hire people and they have to hire them relatively cheaply to get science done. And many graduate students, possibly including myself, have complained while in graduate school that they fell for a pyramid scheme. You are an economist and you have actually compared science to a pyramid scheme. <laughs> compared it to a, to a pyramid scheme for a considerable period of time. What does that mean exactly? Well, I, I just think it means that, um, that young people who have an interest in science, um, have strong incentives, not, and they're not monetary incentives, they're incentives to go into training, but these, but their interest in science is promoted by finding that they can work in a lab and have support, have a stipend and have tuition paid. But nobody, and, and the principal investigator has a vested interest in encouraging them to come and work in the lab. And historically, I think principal investigators have, have been somewhat out of, t out of touch with what the employment options were for their students. Many of them, at least 20 years ago, were considerably older, and when they got their PhD, at least 40 or 50 percent of their classmates got an academic job, and they just didn't pay attention to what was happening to the market for scientists and continued to recruit. I also think that there are people who began to be aware that there were problems <laughs> and continued to recruit, um, in some sense, kicking the can down the road, if, um, saying, you know, come get a PhD with me, and the next thing you do after you get a PhD is you go get a postdoc, and I'll help you get a postdoc, and that's the way the system has worked. Where the crisis happened is when people leave a postdoc, it's been very hard to find um, research positions that they thought they were training for. And so in that sense, I think it's been a pyramid scheme. Now, I should say that I think, at least among the people I work with in the science community today, I think there is finally a, a strong, growing recognition that there are problems in finding research positions for young people um, or sufficient number of research opportunities for newly trained individuals. And I think the committee that you mentioned that is just getting going at the academy next week is an example of a recognition of those problems. And there are a lot of STEM graduate students going into the programs. Relatively few come out to run their own labs successfully, which means there's increased competition for the jobs that remain. You mentioned that 20 years ago, someone probably had a, you know, 40 to 50 percent chance of getting their PhD, potentially doing a postdoc, and then getting that tenure track job that many people go into graduate school thinking that they want. But in 2013, there were more than 830,000 STEM doctorates and engineers in the United States. 
Almost 30,000 more graduate students received their doctorates that year, and 42% of life science PhDs graduated without having a job lined up for them. And you've been talking a bit about recommending that research institutions practice, shall we say, scientific birth control. Mm-hmm. Not take as many graduate students. Are people listening, and what are they doing instead? Well, I think <laughs> I, I, I've advocated birth control and for um, with regard to the output of scientists, but I think right now the incentives simply do not promote that. And let me explain why. If you're a university in the United States, you are ranked. Um, rankings play a huge role. In, in the success of a university. Rankings play a huge role in attracting good students. They play a huge role in attracting um, contributions to the university from alumni and from private foundations. And they play a huge role in attracting um, very, very successful scientists. So what are rankings based on? Well, one of the things that rankings are based on is the amount of research funding you bring in. And to bring in a lot of research funding, you have to have strong graduate programs. So we have a system in the United States that has really, really put a lot of emphasis on growing these PhD programs, um, getting funding, having publications in top journals, having faculty elected to the National Academy, um, having your university elected or selected into the American Association of Universities, the AAU, that's a very prestigious club. So the incent- if I'm a university, there's no way as the provost that I'm going to say we're going to cut our PhD program by 25%. I'll be eaten alive by other programs if I do that. And therein lies the real problem, I think that something has to happen that in some sense affects all programs so that people um, across universities buy into this question. And I will say that I was a real fan, shall we say, of the Fair Labor Standards <coughs> ruling that um, implied, well, that, that said that if you wanted to, to be exempt from overtime pay, that you would have to pay more than something like 47000 I forget the precise number, and it was to go into effect December 5th of this past year. And many, many universities bought onto that because they didn't want to administer overtime pay. Now, I was a fan of that for two reasons. I mean, one, I have argued repeatedly that postdocs in the United States are underpaid. Um, They're considerably underpaid relative to people who have considerably less training and are working considerably fewer hours. But for at least the last 20 years, committees have recommended increasing postdoc pay, and it's been very hard to accomplish. And it's the same reason. No campus is willing to go out and do it all by itself. So this Fair Labor Standards ruling was um, a ruling that was going to affect everybody if you chose to not be part of, of overtime pay, which most campuses did. And therefore, it was it was going to affect most universities. It wasn't selected by one university. And I thought it could really not only more equitably compensate postdocs, and I don't think 47000 is that princely of some, but it's a lot better than 41000 or 40000 
But also, I thought that it would, by raising the cost of postdocs, discourage universities from staffing labs so much with postdocs. Now, unfortunately, um, at least from the perspective of many postdocs, and I think from a policy perspective, the um, a judge um, put a hold on that ruling. And right now, what will happen is in a bit of a, um, it, we're in uncharted waters, shall we say. And it's an unusual situation because some universities have already raised postdoc salaries and others haven't. So I think we have to um, wait to see how that plays out. But the reason I'm raising it right now is that that was something that was going to affect most universities, and therefore you didn't see universities universities bought into it, so to speak. That's very different than being the one university that says, I'm going to do something for postdocs, or we're going to cut the number of PhDs we have, we're producing by 20 or 30 percent. Well, Paula, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about yanking on the purse strings of academia. You're welcome. It's been my pleasure. We have linked to Paula Stefan's book, her research, and more articles about the STEM pipeline at scienceforthepeople.ca. When we get back, we'll hear from Gary McDowell, a scientist who's working to change the shape of the STEM pipeline from the inside. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. We've talked a little bit about the STEM pipeline, what it is, and what it means for people pursuing STEM careers. But many of us who went into science in the first place did so thinking we would go into academia eventually and run our own labs. I know I did. And when I realized that academia might not be for me after all, I ended up feeling kind of stuck. What else can I do? I had spent my whole life in labs, and all I knew how to do was pipette. I was not alone. Many young scientists leaving academia spend at least a little time flailing, worried they don't know how to do anything else. They may not know other people who have left academia and what paths they've taken. They may feel disconnected from the job world outside academia. Now, I'm with someone who's trying to change that. I'm here with Gary McDowell, a scientist and the executive director of The Future of Research, a group working with young scientists to change the way scientific training is done. Gary, thank you so much for chatting with us. Thanks for having me. I was wondering if you'd be willing to start by telling us a little bit about your career path, which is taking something <laughs> of an unusual turn. How did you get started in research? Um, so originally, um, uh, I grew up in um, originally from Northern Ireland, uh, but I grew up in the, the Highlands of Scotland. Um, and I, my parents were both librarians. Um, there was nobody sciencey in my family. And I had a bit of a scientific interest, but I didn't really know it much about academic careers or, or going into research. Um, until an opportunity came up to go to a, uh, summer school. Um, it was actually down in London. And, um, I had applied basically just as something to do in a, a free period in school. 
uh, but had managed to get in, um, got down, headed down to this um, two-week course, uh, which was based in labs, and got my first real experience of doing um, science in a, a more, um, you know, academic setting. Um, and from that, I started to get convinced that I might want to actually start pursuing this path. So, you know, when I applied to university, um, I, I applied for scientific courses, ended up specializing in chemistry. Wasn't sure if I wanted to do a PhD, but as part of my course, there was an undergraduate master's uh, at the end. And I'd really hated lab practicals as an undergrad, but I really loved my master's project. Um, and that really convinced me to go on and apply for PhDs. And once I started heading down the route, um, I sort of committed myself uh, and was looking for, uh, you know, to head to an academic position. And when did you develop an interest in studying and changing the scientific enterprise? I think it was um, when I started doing my postdoctoral work. So I came over to the US, uh, like a lot of us in Britain tend to do, I came over for my postdoctoral training. Um, and it was the first time that I'd really experienced uh, just how tough things were. I had a very charmed PhD existence, I would say. Um, I really enjoyed my project. Things went very well. Uh, I was in a, a, you know, a, a small but good lab. Um, and I had a really productive and intellectually rewarding experience. And I assumed that that was that was uh, just the way things were going to continue. Um, and I came over and my first postdoc uh, didn't work out terribly well. Um, and then when I moved to my second postdoc, uh, I was really, I'd really begun to appreciate a lot of the, the issues that there were with uh, competition and just how competitive everything is and that the hyper competition that we exist in. And also it was, it was interesting because there was now this pressure of, uh, thinking about going for faculty positions, uh, which was very different from when I was a PhD because although it was competitive to get a postdoc, there were so many postdoc positions available, uh, particularly in the US that it, it seemed like a competitive but not overwhelming thing. Um, and suddenly starting to try to worry about getting a faculty job became incredibly overwhelming. And also, um, it, you know, the reality really started to hit home that a lot of the things that you hear going through about, uh, you know, it's tough, but if you just work hard, you'll make it, um, you know, actually became to be, to be clear was not true. And at around that time that I was moving to my second postdoc, um, there was a group of uh, postdocs in the Boston area who were starting to get together from different institutions, um, and sort of the, the early seed of what is now the Boston Postdoctoral Association, which is uh, postdocs from all of the institutions in Boston meeting together regularly to share information and ideas and events and so on. And one of the things that uh, kind of grew alongside that was um, a conference that was uh, being led by Jessica Polka and Kristen Krukenberg at Harvard Medical School. Um, and they were hoping to set up this Future of Research Symposium uh, to discuss uh, issues that junior scientists were facing, sort of in response to uh, this paper that came out by Bruce Alberts, Shirley Tillman, Harold Varmus, and Mark Kirchner. Um, call, uh, sort of, uh, discussing the, um, the state of the U.S. biomedical research enterprise. 
you know, we felt that senior people were talking a lot about these issues, but there often wasn't much of a voice from the junior side coming through. And so we wanted to hold a symposium, sort of educate people a little bit about what was going on and bring some of these people in to talk about the issues uh, that there were and then work workshop through potential solutions uh, with the junior folks and sort of then try and put that back out and say, here's what the junior people are thinking. Here are some ideas that we've come up with. And eventually, 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 that became <laughs> the future of research, the group, the future yeah. of research. What is it and what does it do? So it's, um, yeah, it's not a, a non-profit organization. Um, so it, it sort of, it, it has two major uh, goals. One is trying to enable more of these meetings um, and facilitate grassroots advocacy at institutions. So... Um, after the first meeting in Boston, there were meetings held elsewhere in Chicago, in New York, uh, and in San Francisco. Um, and there's been meetings now. We've had a, a one in Canada and Calgary. There's one coming up in Vancouver in February. Um, we wanted to facilitate um, that continuing, uh, people having local workshops and, and meetings to, to discuss these issues at their institutions. Um, and so providing an organization that could support that, a little bit of infrastructure and not reinventing the wheel every time and sharing resources and helping, you know, to communicate the results of these meetings too, uh, was, was one part. And then the other part is, um, taking a lot of those things that people come up with and also doing research ourselves based on those things um, and trying to advocate for change um, on a national level uh, through communications and working with uh, policy folks and trying to, you know, trying to project that voice, amplify the voice of junior people uh, a little bit more. Uh, and part of the, the research also involves bringing that information back to the junior people uh, so trying to increase transparency about career outcomes and things like salaries and um, things that it's very hard to get uh, the, the data for. So things that we're collecting, we're always trying to put back uh, towards the junior folks to let them have more information about what the system really looks like. Now, you mentioned that during your postdoc, which is a kind of a transitional period between graduate mm. school and a faculty job where you work under another advisor and you do more research. Um, you mentioned that you suddenly found the path was a little more challenging, and you've been talking with these junior scientists about some of the challenges they're facing. What are those issues that young scientists are dealing with right now as they pursue careers in STEM? Sure. So the some of the major things are if you're looking particularly for academic jobs, um, there's just not enough of them for the number of people there are in the system. Um, and there's intense competition for funding. Um, and these things sort of conspire to make it incredibly difficult to try and get a, a position. There's so many people going for it. So there's a lot of pressure to publish uh, or try to get your own funding. Um, and with so many people in the system, uh, there's just a lot of competition for spaces in prestigious journals uh, and the sort of amplification of, of the metric of, of the impact factor of those journals. Um you know, determining people's careers a lot. So there's those kind of issues and the perverse incentives that can be set up um, in trying to reach those incentives, you know, trying to 
people, you know, trying to get their data to look as good as possible, perhaps sort of key hacking of, of your uh, results is a possible thing. Um, not publishing certain things because they're negative results, uh, publishing other things selectively, you know, you start to worry that the, the, the stuff that people are feeling pressured to, to publish, uh, sometimes the pressure coming from themselves, sometimes coming from their PIs also. Um, can be, uh, you know, can be a challenge for, for junior folks. And so there's a lot of issues about the, the actual science there that, that they, uh, are, are challenging for them. And then more generally in just finding any kind of a, a career path after your transitional period, um, there's a real cultural barrier to, uh, going into jobs that are not um, academic. And I actually, when I say academic, what I actually mean is that the cultural, um, the cultural stigma is against positions that are not tenure track faculty positions at R1 institutions or research intensive institutions. Um, because I know certainly of people who are going to liberal arts colleges with faculty positions who, who really get a, get almost as much, uh, abuse as, as people who leave academia entirely from, uh, from people who are still within these sort of prestigious academic institutions. So there's, it's hard to, to consider leaving academia is almost to have considered, is considered to, uh, you know, already be failing and not be good enough. Um, and then actually trying to get information is very difficult on what those career paths look like, uh, on what you need to go down those career paths. Um, and getting access to training is a real issue. Um, and this is, this actually also applies to academia. Uh, postdocs are being directed towards academic positions. Um, but they are doing bench science all the time, um, or, uh, you know, focusing directly on their research and they are not being trained to mentor people. They're not being trained how to manage a lab financially or how to manage people in a lab. Um, their training in writing grants is very variable depending on who they're working with and what institution they're at. Uh, even their training in how to write papers. I'm hearing more and more of postdocs who don't write papers and the professor writes the paper instead. Um, and so it's, it's interesting that I'm hearing of, of, of complaints from people saying, why do I have this postdoc who came from a lab or this senior postdoc who doesn't write their own papers? Um, and so it's, it's really, that's really frustrating because we're not even training people for the positions, uh, that they're going, that they're being directed towards properly. Never mind these other positions that there's all, also a cultural stigma about applying for. Um, and part of this also, uh, there's this idea that having a PhD innately makes you great at all sorts of things that everyone outside academia would want anyway. So uh, and a, a lot of this comes down to um, there's a real need because of the competition for funding and for publications for people to be in the lab as much as possible, at least perceive that people need to be in the lab as much as possible. So anything that is not in the lab is a distraction that could harm someone's uh, grant success or publication success, uh, both the person themselves, but also the uh, academic uh, who is, you know, leading their lab, who is mentoring them. Um, and so it's hard to get access to the training and uh, in any sort of form or do anything that is away from the bench uh, because of that desperate need for the, the labor at the bench to be to be carried out. A lot of these problems sound very systemic. Mm. Um, you talk a lot about the competition for grants and also just the intense pressure for postdocs to kind of postdocs especially, but graduate students as well. To be mm -hmm. at the bench all the time that, you know, any time not at the bench is time wasted. 
Mm. What kind of changes do you think need to occur to kind of address those pressures? Um, there, the, the big problem with this and, and what everyone always sort of comes back with as a negative is that this requires culture change. And then, of course, you get the response that culture change is hard. But really, it does need a shift in the culture um, of what what um, academic training is and is for um, the the idea that um, that we should be having this massive trainee population and that they should only be working at the bench and then that we cast them off without um, really having any... I mean, people have no idea where these people go uh, if they leave academia. Um, and we don't even know how many postdocs there are uh, currently in the US, uh, never mind where they end up after. So this sort of... Th- this idea of having people just coming through the system in, in this volume um, with no real thought or direction about where they're going and how they could be better used um, or gainfully employed to help society, to help science, to help academia... Um, is is really what what needs to be changed um yeah and you also mentioned that as part of these cultural pressures there's a lot of stigma toward even people who are just going into say being a professor at a small liberal arts college as opposed to being a tenure track professor at a big research university why is there that stigma how do you fight that sort of thing yeah there's this i find this fascinating too because i you know an academic to me uh is someone who sort of inherent in the the title is someone who should be teaching and so the idea that um it's it's really can be really difficult to get teaching experience and get a postdoc where um you know you're able to teach um and this is actually a mistake that i made i had taught a lot in grad school and i had been really looking forward to coming over to postdoc in the u.s and do some teaching here but of course i went as a postdoc to harvard med school and quickly realized that uh teaching there was in the way that i've been teaching uh uh, in my PhD was not going to happen. Um, so uh, it's um, it's interesting because really what has to shift is this this constant um, you know message that the pinnacle of academic uh, perfection is to be one of these uh, professors at a research intensive institution um, and that you know the pinnacle of science is to be an academic the there are many ways of making great scientific contributions um, as a lot of people who have left academia know very well um, but that message is not getting back into the academic system and there is very much this this um, idea of being at an elite institution getting lots of grant money uh, and being one of those those uh, people um, who who's you know, running a fancy lab with lots of grants at a fancy institution. Um, and it is, it is very hard trying to change that message. Um, and it is, I am, I'm uncertain of the best way of going about it other than, uh, trying to keep pushing back and keep amplifying the message that actually there's all these other things that people can do. Um, um, and, and part of, part of that is, is trying to bring back more people, um, and more people's voices into academia who have left academia, trying to uh, bring them back to institutions and and get their voices heard more by the junior people so that they can hear, you know, what challenges and pressures people face, Uh, not only what jobs there are out there, um, but also how competitive those other jobs are too. Um, There is a worry that if you, uh, that one message may be, oh, there's lots of other things PhDs can do, so 
um, you know, you don't need to worry too much. But of course, when you start looking around for things outside, you find very quickly that there are people who have managed to secure training for uh, industry positions or for um, you know, communication positions who have got portfolios together of work, um, who have been, you know, who are, some of these positions are even more competitive than academic positions. Um, and I find it very interesting when there, there are people who say, oh, well, you should just go into science communication or science journalism, uh, which is arguably uh, more competitive <laughs> than, <laughs> than academia. Um, uh, that is a sinecure for the, the, you know, the the glut of postdocs and PhDs. I always find a, a curious argument. Um, but really, trying to trying to get that amplified more um, is, it, I think, it's also something that that future research is trying to do. We value very much um, all, you know, all the contributions that people are making in general for science and society, regardless of whether or not they're in academia. And so we're really keen to try and bring bring more of these groups together, these people from outside academia, back back across because um, a lot of them have left and you know understandably don't really want to have anything to do with academia again after having been called failures or or you know being ostracized from the community so um yeah it's when when that's when the message that you hear is that you should be going for academia or you're a failure and you hear that constantly within the bubble of academia then it's you know it's hard to get out of that mindset Gary, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. We've linked to more information about Gary McDowell and the future of research at scienceforthepeople.ca. When we get back, we'll be chatting with Melissa Vaught, a scientist who successfully dripped out of the pipeline. She'll tell us how she found her way and how she helps others to do the same. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Welcome back to Science for the People. Today, we're talking about the STEM pipeline and what happens to science when there are too many people and too few jobs for them. It's all very well to talk about systemic change and making people more aware of other options, but how exactly do you bust out of the science pipeline? I'm here with Melissa Vaught, a PhD in chemistry, who is now a scientific editor with the National Institutes of Health. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, and so I am contracted out to the National Institutes of Health, but I'm here on my personal time. So uh, the typical government disclaimer, uh, I'm uh, my views are my own and do not necessarily represent those of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services or the National Institutes of Health. But I'm uh, glad to be here to talk about these issues. And your personal views are absolutely what we're after. So obviously, you and I both went into science before we got out of science. Why did you decide to go into science in the first place? I was doing chemistry 
um, had a really fantastic general chemistry professor, Dr. Kelter. Um, and I will never forget walking into his class on the first day. I was running late because it was my first day on campus. Uh, I couldn't figure out where this building was. I walk into this giant lecture hall and there's this guy at the front on the stage, um, sort of balding, curly red hair, glasses, and a tie-dyed lab coat. Uh, and during the course of the lecture, it included clips from South Park of Cartman and his, you know, respect my authority. Um, so, you know, that was really a, an initial connection and he was very much, um, trying to get the students in the class involved in, and really engaged in chemistry. And so he really was encouraging of students to come to office hours and, and to mo- make those connections. And so I start at this point because along the way, uh, Dr. Kelter and I were talking about what I wanted to do and, has he started kind of persuading me of, well, you know, doing a biochem major would be really valuable for a pre-med. Um, you know, you're going to get all of the prerequisites that you need. And if by some chance you decide at some point that, you know, you want to do something else, you have a major there and you've got something that's really valuable. Uh, and so that was really where I started to get connected into science. Um, Dr. Kilter also was the one who started uh, persuading me after my my first year of well you know it's really good to get some research experience and you know even for for grad school and there's some opportunities here in the department um, where we can pay students to do research and you know there's the the department head Dr. Nile I know that he's really looking for someone to come in and work with him um, so you should think about this. And so that started me down that path of getting in a little bit into doing research in the undergraduate setting. And so you went to graduate school, you got a PhD. When did you start to realize that science might not actually be what you wanted to do? Um, that really started it when I became a postdoc. So I did my PhD uh, at Vanderbilt University. I had a really fantastic experience while I was there. Um, I decided that after um, doing my graduate work, which was really focused on how these parti- this particular family of enzymes um, or proteins worked to, to create molecules involved in inflammation, um, that I wanted to do something that was a little bit more biological related, um, something that had more, in my view, direct translational potential. So I was starting to come back to that idea of, you know, that um, early on, I had really had this connection with um, with medicine and wanting to be able to contribute in that way. And when I first started graduate school, I started thinking about graduate school, that was always an element that was in my in the back of my mind of, Maybe this is a way that I can contribute to improving human health um, in a different way and maybe some way that's a bit broader than just seeing patients day to day. So what did you end up doing when you realized, well, it's, it's time to get out. This is not giving me what I need. What kind of steps did you end up taking? 
Well, I have to say, so the first the first round when I uh, first started having those questions, um, I really wasn't entirely sure what to do. I started thinking. I started reaching out to a couple of people that I knew. One of them being my former PhD advisor um, to say, you know, this is not working. What what can I do? Um, and I got some good feedback, you know, some good advice, I think, at the time. Um, and that first instance of thinking about, you know, is this the right direction for me actually resulted in me just saying, let's put this on hold and find another postdoc. Um, so in a way, I guess there was sort of that um, retreat into what I knew and that retreat back to the path that I had started pursuing after graduate school. So I went, I found another uh, postdoc, um, which was a very different environment. And, you know, I think there was that sort of thought that, okay, well, maybe in another place um, with a different environment, things are going to change. And I think in some ways they did. Um, there was there were a lot of things that changed for the better. But then after I had been there for um, for a couple or three years, it started hitting that wall again of what is this going to take? Is this really what I want? Um, and that's I think that was the point when I really started to say, OK, if not research, then what? And it really is quite a daunting process to think about. You know, what is, I think, because we get so many, um, so much emphasis on particular views or particular paths of what PhDs do, then it starts to, it, it can be really daunting to, um, to consider what other things are out there. Um, you know, because I think my perspective from graduate school uh, was, well, you either become a professor or you go into industry. And I knew that industry was not a, a direction that I wanted to head, um, certainly not at least doing bench science. Um, but I think the thing that was really beneficial for me at this point is that a few years previous to this, uh, I had started blogging. And then probably a year or so later, I joined Twitter. And in that process, I started building these networks and these communities within those spheres. And so these were often people that I had never met in my life. Um, some of them I would go on to, to meet on different occasions. But there were a lot of people doing a lot of different things. And so that was the first uh, sort of introduction for me to see, here are some of the things that other people are doing. And so from there, I actually started you know, going through this process. And I think that um, we kind of look for this magic formula to decide how to do this and where to go with this. Um, but for me, it was, I think, in some ways, very stochastic. It was this sense that I knew that something needed to change. I wasn't quite entirely sure what it was or how to change it, um, but there was that part of just needing to start that process. And so I started looking at some of the, the things that were out there. And somewhere along in, during this time, um, people had started talking about this My IDP. And so this is the um, IDP is an individual development plan. And 
so some years ago, um, Science Careers, along with a couple, uh, a couple of others, worked on developing this IDP that was really targeted towards individuals in sciences. And it goes through this thing of having your self-assessment. Um, so going through and thinking about uh, ranking yourself with regard to what your strengths are, what your interests are, what your values are, and then making some suggestions about how those strengths and interests match up with careers that uh, that a lot of people have or that people in science have, you know, whether that is being a professor at a university or being someone who works in policy. And so that was one of the first things that really started to help focus that uncertainty and that anxiousness about what I was going to do next. And now you actually got out of academia and you've talked with other people who are looking at getting out of academia about the IDP. So it's an assessment. How does it work? What do you have to do? So the IDP, I was really first, uh, I first came up on it when I was a grad student, um, before there was the fancy online My IDP uh, that's available now. And it was had been developed earlier as this idea of having graduate students and postdocs really consider what their career path was, uh, what they were looking to do for that next phase and what they needed to do to reach that stage. Uh, and in those times, it was this very unstructured thing. There were these sort of key questions and there were these recommendations about, oh, you should do these self-assessments and understand what it is that um, that you bring to the table and what you're really interested in. And it's really matured, I think, a bit over time. It's become a little bit more structured with the my my IDP, um, but at the core of it, it's about taking time to understand yourself and to create a plan for moving forward. So it's that thing of saying, here are the things that I care about. Um, here are the things that really match up, you know, that I can do well. These are the things that I would be interested in doing well for the next few years. Um, and using that to help identify what are some of the career paths that I'm interested in. Okay, now that I know that I'm interested in doing a career in policy or science writing or whatever it may be, what are the qualifications that those types of jobs are looking for? Um, do I need to get writing experience? Do I need to get some sort of internship experience? Um, and then being able to plot out um, those, you know, essentially to plot and to plan those types of of experiences so that you're when you're ready to go to the job market, you're as best prepared as you can be. So one of the things I think my IDP brings to the table really is, um, well, first of all, it's free. So that helps. Free is good. 
when you're absolutely a student or a postdoc. But also what I think is super important is how my IDP doesn't just say, oh, you would be a good psychologist, construction worker. Those those are not options. But if they were, um, they don't right, just say isn't, you should do This that. isn't the Myers-Briggs. <laughs> right. But it says, right. here's what you need to do. Here's the experience you need to have. Because it's now becoming established that just the PhD is often not enough to just get you a career. Exactly. And one of the things that you know, when the, the MyIDPP first came out, um, there were a lot of people who took it, you know, people who were well established in their careers and didn't plan on making any changes whatsoever, um, who took it and posted their things online. It's like, oh, does guess this means that I should be a whatever. And um, I think one of the things that the MyIDP really presents well is to say it gives you this match um, that's based on your skills that as you have determined your skills to be uh, and your interests and it leaves open this category of values so this sort of thing of what you want to accomplish in much broader terms um, there's it really does leave that open and so i think it it creates a framework that makes it a little bit more um, accessible or uh, makes it a little bit easier to say, okay, I don't need to go with the thing that's at the top of this list. I can you know, look through these other things and see how they match up with um, you know, essentially what I want my mission in life to be, um, which I know sounds very big and you know, a little touchy-feely for some people, but um, I think ultimately that's what a lot of people are are really searching for. They're searching for a purpose for their career. Um, and as you said, one of the great things with my IDP is that it provides some resources for you to connect with so that you're not just saying, okay, so you should be a policy analyst. Okay, well, what, what do those people do? Where do they work? What do you have to do to get there? Um, and so it gives you the resources or offers some of the resources that are a good starting point for exploring some of those careers. Uh, and I'll say that I've you know, talked with some people who have used my IDP and it just doesn't quite work for them. Um, and that's fine. But um, I think that that the concept of the IDP is really valuable, even if the structure of it takes a different form. And so even if that particular uh, sort of directed format of IDP doesn't work for you, um, or it, you come out on the end of it saying, I've learned nothing about myself, I knew all of this already, there are other ways to approach it. There are some ways that are a bit more narrative approached. And frankly, that was one of the things that I did in sort of an intermediate stage of deciding to leave the research pipeline. When I first told my postdoc advisor that I was thinking of leaving academia, we had a very long and intense discussion during which he was really trying to encourage me. I think he was, he felt like he was trying to talk me back from the ledge, so to speak. And to be honest, that sort of rattled some of my confidence about my decision. It's like, okay, am I doing this because I'm, you know, having the, at the time I was having a lot of other changes going on in my life. Um, as I mentioned, I was married when I first started my postdoc. And at the time I was going through a divorce. And so there was that thing of like, of checking, okay, am I really looking to leave academia, looking to leave research? 
because this is what I really want from my life or because other things are changing and I'm not entirely sure of where I am. After that particular conversation, I also took time to do sort of more of a freestyle approach, uh, a more narrative approach to saying, okay, why do I want to leave research? What is it about research you know, that got me interested in research? Um, what was it that I was looking to accomplish by going into research? Where are some of the other places that I can accomplish that? And so there are some guides out there for doing those types of things as well. Um, but again, I think it's that major element is that the IDP is about taking time to understand yourself and then to understand how that fits in with these, these other elements and then using that knowledge to really track down the resources and to start making connections and talking to people uh, about their careers and understanding is, okay, that's something that I could could really see myself doing. And, you know, talking to this other person and saying, oh, that's, you know, maybe that's not the direction I want to go, but this is an important thing that I learned from that conversation. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. It's really valuable. I'm, it was my pleasure to be here. We've linked to Melissa Vaught and more information about the STEM pipeline and the individual development plan at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. You can also find our Patreon page, where you can support our intrepid little podcasting crew with a monthly donation. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs>